Hey, Michael. Hey, Dennis. How are you? I'm wandering around Lower Manhattan. What, what are you doing today? Uh, well, actually, my nieces are up from Pennsylvania, so I went out to New Jersey to meet them, and then we came into Manhattan, had lunch, and we went to the the Museum of the American Indian. Okay, yeah, I can uh, definitely hear all the street sounds. (laughs) So, uh, yes, tonight we released the episode of The Photo Show, um, your episode of The Photo Show, which we recorded at Affirmation Arts. And um, is the the show that you just saw at the museum the one that, uh, the thing you'd like to recommend? Yeah, no, I think it was a a great thing to go and see. Um, I mean, they have a really, really incredible... uh, I think it's a special exhibition of Native American jewelry, contemporary Native American jewelry. Really incredibly beautiful stuff. That's great. I can hear screaming children and everything. <laughs> yes, that might be my daughter. I don't know. But there's a lot oh. of screaming children around. All right. It sounds very confusing. So uh, we'll let you go. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. <laughs> All right. All right. So we are here at Affirmation Arts with Dennis Santella. Hello, Dennis. Hello. And my co-host today is Kai McBride. Hi, Kai. Hello, Michael. <laughs> so, Dennis, I, um, I've been trying to figure out how to describe Affirmation Arts, which is this beautiful building very close to the Javits Center in New York City. Uh, how would you describe what goes on here? Mm. I, I've been trying to figure out how to describe it, too. <laughs> um, it's sort of a, an odd, like, multifaceted art center um, gallery exhibition space. There's a bit of a private collection uh, of photographs and books. Um, we do a little bit of everything. We work with art nonprofits in the city, hosting events and auctions and things. When, so, I, when I walked in, I saw some beautiful prints being made. So there are, there are portfolios being printed here? Yeah, I mean, that's some of the work that I do here. I help the owner with some of his own work uh, and help manage the collection. Different things. I'm kind of a, a factotum. <laughs> Yeah, and the views are breathtaking. I mean, it's amazing <laughs> space uh, yeah. on top of everything else. Yeah. Dennis, how did you get started in photography? I guess like the, the the very beginning of it all would be probably from my father. I mean, he was a he photographed a lot uh, and gave us all cameras when we were kids, and we photographed. You know, and we had a little he had a little dark room that he'd built in the basement uh, before maybe before I was born even. Um, how long ago are we talking about? I mean, this like when he did it, it was probably. They moved there in the 70s, late 70s. Moved where? 77 to Teaneck, New Jersey. Mm. That's where I grew up. Um, so we had a little darkroom in the basement. And you know, I'd always kind of been photographing with whatever camera I hadn't broken yet. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, and I don't know. I'd never, I guess, never really treated it very seriously. It was just something like another sort of thing to do. And Yeah, so I photographed a lot. We had a little darkroom in the basement that I fixed up uh, when I was in high school and started making black and white prints there. I'd actually, in I think my senior year of high school, I did a summer session at Stanford and took a black and white photo class there. And so I learned some more, some more things there. And, uh, but it wasn't until I came to Columbia that I really took it more seriously. Well, that's because you, you actually have a background in the sciences, right? And, and is it the medical arts? No, I mean, my, my undergraduate degree was in neuroscience and behavior. Mm. So it was kind of a combination of psychology and biology. Um, and then after that, before I went back to graduate school to study with Tom, I, I did a master's degree in public health and environmental health sciences, studying, I think it was mainly like toxicology and um, yeah, it was environmental health science. So Dennis is the second person who's got dual graduate degrees, right? We had uh, Patrice Helmar was on here who has two masters and now... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, she's got a master's in education. So, it, so when you came out of high school, you were interested in, in the sciences? Yeah. I mean, craft and like making things had always been a big part of uh, our life at home, I think. Like my my grandfather uh, was in the Seabees. He was in the Naval Construction Corps. And whenever we'd go and like stay at my grandparents' house, you know, we'd build things in his. He had a little shop in the basement that I, I still use now. I live in their house, actually. Um, so I still use his little wood shop and we'd make things. And we we're just always sort of making things. Both of my brothers are sort of artists and craftspeople and scientists as well. I mean, both of them have graduate degrees in the sciences, uh, but they're also both you know, always making things, like working with their hands and 
Um, and isn't it from your mother's side that the more science angle comes in, or is that? I don't know. I mean, incorrect? I think it's both sides, really. I mm. mean, my my mother is a professor of um, biochemistry, and well, she's what does she do? She does. <laughs> I don't know what she does exactly. <laughs> Molecular <Nice>. epidemiology, <laughs> I think, is technically what she does. Uh, um, and my father, he had a, a graduate degree too in environmental science, mm. more like environmental engineering, I think it was. And worked for the EPA for like 35 years. All right. Well, now here's the obvious question. How disappointed were they when you decided to go into photography? I don't know if they were disappointed or just kind of confused. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. They've been, I'm still trying to figure out what their attitude is towards it. I think they're still just kind of confused. Like, what is is he doing exactly? I've seen some of your photographs. I, I guess maybe it's your brother uh, doing uh, some metalsmithing, some some work in a, a metal shop. Yeah, I have two older brothers who are twins. Uh, one of them does a lot of metalworking. He does some blacksmithing and sheet metalwork, uh, building like arms and armor was his main interest, and I think is still still his main interest. And the medieval other one, armor. Right? Yeah, medieval yeah. armor. Uh, and the other one does uh, more sculpture and painting. He does a lot of wood carving these days. I've been to your house, your parents' house, uh, once, and I've seen your grandfather's shop. And um, I think, you know, talking about what maybe influences people to get started and thinking of making things and having a creative life, I really, other than you have this common story of a father or, or a parent who gives you a camera... I think the whole family is sort of centered around this idea of, of making things. And it's not just, oh, we have some screwdrivers and drills and a saw sitting around in the back, right? You guys have like a real setup there. And you invite people. You used to at least have these summer events where you invite people out. Can you talk a little about, a bit about that and what it was like growing up in that kind of household? Yeah, no, it's been a while since we, we've had one of those uh, like making parties, uh, which were great fun, where you like invite everyone over to sort of use the equipment and experiment with you know, whatever they happen to be interested in doing. And I think that was a that was a big influence in growing up is that there was always this idea that, you know, if you wanted to try to do something, you now we should try and do it and see see what happens. Yeah, people do ambitious projects on these one day things, right? Like what what what's an example of something? I remember you telling me some things that sounded kinda of wild. Um, like I don't know if I can think of any particularly strange things. I mean some people have made like little kitchen knives or um someone made a little like aluminum tray to, to carry coffee on. Mm-hmm. People experiment with like wood carving or blacksmithing is a big favorite because it's not something that most people are set up to do at home. Yeah, blacksmithing uh, in your apartment in Brooklyn isn't happening anytime <laughs> soon, right? Although it is a relatively easy thing to do. I mean, I my my brother my brothers were not not easy to do, but it's an easy yeah. thing to get started. Uh, you know, we had these great books by uh, Jim Chrysalis, who's I think published a. A bunch of books about knife making in the 70s and 80s uh, and he has instructions on building a forge in the books you know you have a, a vacuum cleaner that's reversed a couple of pipe fittings and you now an old barbecue that you cut the bottom out of and you have a, a forge that you can use <laughs> you know and we awesome. my brother brothers built one first uh that was kind of primitive and didn't work so well and then when i was in i think early high school i built another one that worked a little bit better um hmm. uh, and we started making <laughs> making knives in the backyard i mean it was uh, once you get started doing things and you kind of like lose that fear of, I don't know, burning yourself or, or things exploding, there's a lot of cool stuff you can do. My brother also, uh, you know, my parents were very supportive. My father bought uh, Anthony when he was interested in metal casting. He'd done some very like small scale casting with a torch. Uh, he bought him a little like small blast furnace. Now, when we visited one of these museums where they they show you how they used to do green sand casting and he bought like a five-gallon bucket of green sand and started doing green sand aluminum casting in the backyard. Yeah, um, amazing. So you you mentioned in in your description on your website, which is uh, it's www.santella.org/dennis. Okay, I well, use, or you can just do it at santella.org. Uh, my brothers and I share a domain name, uh, so you can get to all of our sites from that. Oh, so it's it's a it's a site that also has work from your brothers. Yeah, we all have uh, the same like base domain. Santella.org. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you, you mentioned in a, a description you write that the, all of these things inform your work, the, the sciences, the, the craftsmanship, the, you know, the, the work you do. Uh, 
I've been looking over your projects, and there's a photographic project on community gardens and working with 4x5 camera, doing split-screen images, uh, also photographing your grandmother's house, I noticed as well. How, how does this sort of background play into your work? No, it's, it's a, a, a tricky question to answer because it's all so complicated. But they're all, they're all things that I'm, I'm thinking about, I think, when I'm photographing, and uh, it all informs the work in some way. Now, I mean, I, I think a lot about education, and there's a lot that uh, that has to do with neuroscience and, and crafts uh, and working with your hands. Now, like recently, I have a four-year-old daughter, so I've been thinking a lot about early childhood education. And I read, I was just talking to you earlier about uh, woodworking blogs. I read a, a blog by a woodworker um, who is a shop teacher um, and you know writes a lot about the influence of working with your hands on education and a sense of empowerment in the world and uh, how it influences education in such a positive way that I think sort of... Um, unintentionally was a big part of my education. He doesn't talk about the neuroscience of it so much, but it's very grounded in, or starting to be grounded in, in <laughs> neuroscience. I mean, that's, that's, I think, what eventually turned me on to like, working more in the arts is that a lot of the interesting questions of neuroscience or um, psychology have been dealt with, or I don't know if you'd say dealt with, or <laughs> it's not like they were solved, but they've been approached in some way in the arts or through people's work, you know, being sensitive to the world and to like how you interact with the world. Um, so there's a lot of interesting like neuroscience papers I've been reading recently about the connections between sort of abstract thinking and the somatosensory cortex and how you now that's, that's sort of how you have abstract thoughts is through physical interaction with the world. Like when you imagine, say, what it's like to do something or imagine, imagine an action of any kind, it has to go through sort of your somatosensory cortex, like how you process actual physical actions in the world. So there's some ideas in sort of philosophy and neuroscience about thinking about like how does abstract thought, how is abstract thought formed? And that only happens through like the same pathways that inform like physical action. You had a, another project on your site called Electric Dreams, which was using 4 by 5 camera and film, recorded images of screens in a, uh, a contextual setting. Like it wasn't just the screen, but there were, there were the, the sort of objects around the screens and things like that. Uh, is that also part of the idea of influence on how we behave? Did that play into that idea? I don't know. I, mean, I think at that time I, was, I wasn't really going about that project with like a, a philosophical intent. I, I think I was just like I was sort of following one of the, the great directives that sort of that Tom gave us in, in photo one and that I say to all my students as well, you know, to find the stage where the trappings of your inner life are played out. And I thought like, now this is totally a place where, you know, totally the stage where my inner life is being played out is on this computer screen. I started doing that in, in uh, when I was doing my first graduate degree uh, and it was right after my undergraduate work and my girlfriend in college had moved to Singapore. And so I was taking like 22 credits in graduate school and on the computer all the time, like emailing her. I don't think I wasn't Skyping at that time, but I was on the computer a lot. And so like my whole life was going on there. And I thought like, this is something I should try and photograph and see like, what is it? Yeah. I think it's also interesting that Dennis was probably the first person I knew who had a device before the smartphone revolution. You had that, uh, what was that thing you were carrying around? The thing that's in those Oh, that crazy! That that like armor plated. Uh, yeah, this, the, like the yeah, palm trio. Yeah, palm trio. Oh, and so yeah, yeah. I had this like it looked like a tank casing. There was a big <laughs> aluminum shell for it. Yeah, which had papers and stuff. He pulled it out, and you had to use a stylus to like yeah. do things. And he's like, "Oh, there." And this is now everyone says, "Oh, there's an app for that." But this is way before that, or you know, way. I read Dante's Paradise years. on that phone. Yeah, exactly. I had that device. I loved that device. Uh-huh. <laughs> I loved the palm. Yeah, those are they're nice. Yeah, it's a big thing, but. Right. <laughs> but aren't, isn't some of the photographs that are, are the screens that are rephotographed? Are they on the? Phone? Yeah, there's one or two pictures of that. Phone. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, so you were ahead of the curve because it was just like two years. It's later weird. I was that. like ahead Boom. and behind the curve. I mean, I, like my family, I think was it was a pretty early adopters of technology. I mean, we had computers in the a computer in the late '80s, I guess it was, and like I went onto BBSs when they were there. Some of the first BBSs bulletin boards sneak yeah. down at midnight when my parents were asleep and 
you know, you dial up on the modem and make this horrible <laughs> screeching sound that yeah. I don't think there was any way to turn off. So you'd sort of like hope that no one heard it. But I didn't have a cell phone until like the last year of college, which was pretty late. I mean, everyone else had cell phones. Yeah, that's um, true. Yeah. You mentioned um, one of the genesis for the idea or the genesis for the idea of the um, Electric Dreams was Tom Roma telling you to uh, investigate your, your own life, what interests you, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Was that when you were an undergrad at Columbia or was, was that in graduate school? Uh, I took his class the first time when I was an undergraduate. So it was in it was actually in 2001. So like our first week of class was September 11, 2001. So you guys would have overlapped at Columbia then. When you no, were you so. were gra- you graduated, you graduated in 2001. I graduated yeah. the spring of 2001. Oh, so you started in the fall. Mm-hmm. I yeah. just missed each other. Yeah. I mean, I was there as an undergrad because I started in 99. But that project I started after undergraduate when I was in graduate school. Was it the uh, undergraduate course that you know, helped you decide or, or made you want to switch to photography? Well, it took a while, I mean, to to switch. I don't know, I don't know that I've ever really switched to, to anything. If you're still reading neuroscience papers, I don't think you've switched completely. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it definitely awoke my interest and like awoke this idea that you could do something more with it. Like I think, I think one of the, the main things that really uh, fascinated me was the sort of literary potential of it. Like I'd always been a big reader, and I think that's one of the one of the things that I love about like Tom's books or other photo books is the sort of like literary quality to uh, ambitious, like more ambitious photographic work. Uh, I think that's what really drew me into it and made it like also the, like the way he talked about his work as kind of research sometimes into a certain thing. I found really compelling and you know, work into things I was slowly starting to think about. I was just in college. I was still, <laughs> I still had no idea what I wanted to do or what. It, like after college, I ended up working at a cognitive science lab for a few years, and uh, it took a while before I came back uh, and did the master's program there, the MFA program at Columbia. Oh, so there was time between your your undergrad and your graduate. Well, I went straight from undergraduate into the MPH program, the Master of Public Health, and then there was maybe two years where I was. What was I doing in those two years? <laughs> well, I worked. Actually, what happened is I, I graduated with my master's degree in public health, and I'd been looking for jobs, and I was still sort of in contact with Columbia. And I actually, for like 10 years, I was a darkroom monitor there <laughs> because I did my undergraduate and my graduate work there. Um, so I'd been working in the darkroom monitoring and sort of in and out of touch with Tom occasionally. Uh, and I ended up working part-time uh, for Howard Stein, who was a big photo collector in, in New York, made an amazing photo collection, and then ended up working full-time for him, helping um, inventory the collection. And that was actually you know, an amazing photographic education to go through his whole, you now so vast, like 8,000-piece collection. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, Laura, <laughs> Laura Mercek Sellers is uh, going to be on a future podcast for oh, right. Correct Michael, and she worked there as well, yeah. so she could probably speak about that as well. I remember seeing her photograph of... Tom's feet, not Tom. Well, was someone, I think her husband or boyfriend's feet is in the collection. But yeah, no, he had everything, you know, from the earliest Talbot photographs to, you know, contemporary Japanese photography. So I got to like see it all there. One of the more recent projects you're working on is the Italian trenches of World War II. And you, you have a, a strong tie to Italy. I believe you, you, go, you go there to stay with your wife's family once a year? Yeah, my wife's family lives uh, outside of Trieste in, in northeastern Italy. Uh, I joke here, it's not really not really part of Italy. It's, <laughs> it wasn't part of Italy until after World War One. I, I think. It was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire for 500 years. Uh, so it's very different from my experience of Italy. Like my, my family is from southern and central Italy, um, and we used to go and visit outside of Rome. My grandmother's town is Itri, um, just south of Rome. Uh, so northern Italy is quite different. You know, it's a different sort of culture. I love going back there, and uh, we're raising our daughter speaking Italian, and we're trying to build connections. And so how did you think about starting that project with the trenches then? I was I was trying to think about I had a friend who uh, had experienced a very traumatic incident, uh, violent trauma, and I was trying to get closer to it in some way to to think about it um, and try and not make sense of it, but just try and feel it in some way or understand in some way. Um, and reading it's mainly through reading like Ungaretti first, who's an Italian poet who served in the trenches there, and reading some of the other war poets or writers who were who served in World War One that you know got me interested in going to these places. And once I started going and 
just kind of wandering around and crawling through the trenches and trying to photograph there, uh, it felt like there was something to work on, something that was happening that was productive. Yeah, you described so it kept as going. you described it as quite physical, as I recall. That you know, I guess because some of the areas are overgrown and everything, that you really have to get down in the trenches yeah. sometimes to make the photographs. And um, one uh, tr- one thing that I know has been coming up in these conversations a lot is the idea of having a project, needing to solve a problem for it, and like maybe coming up with an, a new gear solution that makes it possible. And uh, as I remember you telling me trying to crawl around in the trenches carrying cameras and all this other stuff you wound up coming with this new system that you're crazy about now right yeah now i i use it everywhere actually i now because as you're saying you know these these trenches are very overgrown the italian front is very different from say the western front in france and belgium where the ground was very muddy uh there the the trenches were basically built on it's called the carso there it's like a very rocky countryside so all of these trenches are still more or less there you know there's been a lot of like underbrush and things that have grown up inside of them but for the most part a lot of it is still pretty accessible and you can you know wander around in them to some extent i mean most of it is pretty like heavily overgrown so they can be tricky to find the ones that aren't marked for some of them you really have to like get down on your hands and knees and kind of like crawl through them and as you're saying i was having a lot of trouble sort of like carrying a bag around like a regular shoulder bag that was flopping all over the place and dragging along behind me so I came up with this system of, it's actually, I think they call it like a tactical belt or something. Like the, It's this like heavy-duty belt that police or uh, the military uses to attach like gas masks and ammo pouches and their pistols to. Uh, and I got like a, I forget what, it, what the bag itself is actually for, but I attached one of these big uh, bags to this belt and built a little sort of custom-fitted insert that the, the panorama, the camera that I'm using to shoot in the trenches, uh, fits into. So I don't have to have anything on my shoulders and I can kind of like crawl around and lay directly down on the ground or on my back and like photograph up or photograph from ground level. I mean, that's yeah, that's yeah. something I've been trying to do a lot, thinking about like being really in the ground in that way. It's a very different way of like experiencing the landscape is being really inside of it. And it's something that comes across a lot in the, the poetry. Yeah, I think our listeners should imagine like a fanny pack on steroids basically it's this massive thing that yeah that is sort of what it looks on. like it yeah. looks like this gigantic like like a fanny pack that's been inflated <laughs> to three times its normal size yeah but it's very securely on there it's pretty amazing yeah, yeah no i've been surprised that the first belt i bought fell apart within like two months but i bought a like a better quality one that's lasting really well are these trenches purposely preserved or is it just that it's it's sort of wild overgrown mm-hmm. area some of them are purposely preserved like there's some areas um, where they have, you know, there's these, what would you call them, like historic walks you can do where there are sections of trenches that they have preserved. Uh, but there's also a lot of them that are just there. You know, nobody's farming the land or doing anything up there, so they just sit there and slowly grow over. Now, I, mem- I remember when I first met you is because it was at an opening at MoMA, and uh, I was a graduate student. I guess I must have been finishing my first year so it would have been 2000, spring of 2007, or maybe it was earlier. I guess maybe it could have even been my first semester now, and I think about it, it may have been the fall of 2006, and uh, I was at this opening that Tom got us into, uh, all the graduate students, and uh, Tom pointed you out and he goes, oh, this is, De- go talk to this guy, Dennis, he wants to apply to the program, and you should talk to him about it. I was coming in, I was, I think, 36 or 37 years old, and I looked over and I thought, oh, who's this young kid? He wants to go right to graduate school, and I, I heard you had gone to Columbia and I thought oh he just wants to go from I didn't realize you had gone off and got another degree you know so I thought you were trying to just piggyback right in so I remember that I we were talking and I think uh, Barbara was with you you guys were both there unless it was another girlfriend but I think it was Barbara. I think it was your now wife Barbara maybe, maybe. and um, you were definitely with someone anyways I, I remember discouraging Probably. you as I, I, I remember saying like it's like why do you want to go to graduate school already you know you should take more time off and do this and that and the other thing and uh, but then the conversation we had, I realized, you know, you we talked more about what you had been up to and, you know, realized that you were very already very serious and had been doing it for a while. And it wasn't just, uh, you know, like this impulse to keep going to school. And then we overlapped for that my last year and your first year. We mm-hmm. overlapped and um, spent a lot of time together. And um, you mentioned sand casting 
And you mentioned the panorama, and we also need to mention the cyclops because Dennis is one of the few of the photographers who has six of one of the six cyclops cameras and has one of the, the only the three that were like given out for, well, you paid like almost nothing for yours. I didn't basically. pay anything for it. I helped <laughs> build it. I was no, no, there. no. You, you, I, I made you pay for the M adapter and did the- it, uh, Maybe. I, yeah. You're right. <laughs> I, did, I think yeah, I did yeah. pay for the M adapter. Yeah, yeah, to pay for the M adapter and for the extension tube set because I had bought this. But. <laughs> just, to, just to remind people that the Cyclops is a, uh, a camera that, uh, Kai, you initiated with Tom Roma in his, uh, his shop. Yeah, and I had this dream that we would finish it in time for when I graduated, and then we wound up finishing it in time for Dennis to graduate. So. <laughs> yeah, it took like two years of yeah, weekends. So to... Dennis shows up with the camera. That Clearly, the Dennis show. purposely slowed down the process. <laughs> now, Dennis first came over to do a sand casting with Tom because Tom had wanted to make this uh, uh, little amulet, I guess you would call it for his son Giancarlo that was had on a lamb on one side and a baseball player on the other side, like at the plate swinging or something. And uh, so I was over there on the lathe. I think I was remaking some of the lens boards that were had that wound up being out of this warped aluminum. And uh, behind me is Tom and Dennis with uh, a crucible and they're melting down. That's right. They're melting down recovered silver from Tom's, when Tom printed Come Sunday. He had all of this silver that he took out of his silver recovery unit. So they're behind me with a blowtorch and I'm sitting there at the lathe and, you know, and then Dennis came around again because I think they did the first version, didn't work out. And then they came back and did another version. And then, uh, then you, you joined in on the, on the whole process. And um, especially at the end when we were doing the, when we had to do all of the anodizing in the backyard. Yeah, that, that was, was a, like, that was a fun process. Yeah, yeah. We're, so it's like Dennis and I in Tom's backyard. At this point, Tom's kind of over the whole thing. He's like, we need to finish this and be done with this now. And so he was in the, he wasn't even outside. He was like in the house doing stuff. And yeah, I think I'd somehow convinced you guys that we should do the anodizing ourselves. Yeah, that's, that might have been it. Yeah. So it's like, you can totally do that at home. Why yeah. So we're like out there with buckets of hydrochloric acid with electric probes going in there. Oh, sulfuric, sorry. Yeah. With uh, probes going in yeah whatever's in batteries yeah, it's sulfuric, I think it's sulfuric. Yeah, yeah. and uh tom is in there like uh, upstairs like not paying attention to what we're doing <laughs> but, but yeah i think i i got started working with tom on on something i think even before that i think the first thing we worked on together was the baseball bats for his son oh yeah he really wanted to make a his son was a, an avid baseball player uh and he wanted to make a, a bat for his son and we we turned a bat together up at up at prentice yeah, that's right. Because I've done a lot that. of wood turning. We had actually it was my my great grandfather's metal lathe in the basement that uh, one of my brothers fixed up to get running again. And I used to do a lot of wood turning, and I still I still do some some wood turning at home. I have a tiny little lathe that my grandfather had in the basement. Yeah, I also have a beautiful little wooden spoon that Dennis made that I have. It's like uh, it's like to spoon out sugar or salt <laughs> or something and. Yeah, every once in a while you post uh, something you've made. Are you on Instagram or Tumblr? I am. I just joined Instagram like Whoa. a month ago or something. Wow. I'm, I'm slowly. <laughs> it's my erratic relationship to technology and <laughs> social media. But it's a great thing. I mean, it's being able to like make something that you want and like serves the purpose that, you know, serves the, the, the problem that you have and solves it in some way is really, you now it's a great empowering thing not to have to go out and buy some piece of junk that, it's not going to work properly, you know. Just last night, I, um, my my daughter, I just I mentioned before, is four years old, and my wife is saying how much she loves and how like great it is that she can draw while she's in the stroller. Um, so last night I made a little, like I just got a little piece of Luan or Masonite or something, and I didn't even I actually had a piece that was kind of just the right size. I made a little hole in it so you could attach it to a little uh, those like stroller straps so things don't fall on the ground, and put a little like a rubber band across the top. Like I made two notches so you can put a rubber band across the top to hold a sheet of paper onto it. So now she has like a little board that she can use to draw while she's in the stroller. Um, and it's great to be able to just do that and like to solve a little problem that you have and not have to go out and buy something. You know, it took like five minutes and it's, you know, a great thing. You know, you can use it. Let's talk a little bit more about some of your photo projects. The Community Garden Project, is this in, in Brooklyn? Is this where those is are Well, those are all in Harlem. Uh, I'd started out photographing in different places. I'd actually, I think the very first time I went out photographing was in, in Brooklyn. Um, but I decided, you now I was still, uh, it was my second year of graduate school at Columbia, and I was I was up there a lot um, and very interested in, you know, there's this, like Columbia was still, I think it was the very early stages of the, the Manhattanville Development Project or whatever they call it up there. 
And so there were a lot of changes going on in Harlem with Columbia's big expansion and uh, wandering around the neighborhood, you could see a lot of uh, new developments and condos that were going up and the neighborhood was really changing a lot. So I decided to focus just on Harlem and, and photograph uh, just in that area. Sort of the, the most expensive definition of Harlem, like from 96th all the way up to, I think, 160th or now they don't call all of that Harlem, but it used to be all Harlem. And these are with the Panorama, right? Yeah, those are all with the Panorama. I mean, we had there was a Panorama at there still is right a Panorama at Columbia that grad students could could borrow. Yeah, it got abused a little bit. It's at Tom's house to be repaired now, mm-hmm. but we do still have one. But that's what you started on. Yeah, I started with that, and uh, I was lucky enough to find one for sale down at K and M. They happened to have one that went up while I was actually working on the project, and I bought it immediately <laughs> do you know do you know whose camera it was it was ragabir singh's actually it's oh, wow. number two uh. yeah amazing um so yeah i spent i spent that that was my thesis project and then i spent another three or four years after that uh, continuing to work on that project i expanded a little bit i started out just photographing active gardens and then i expanded it to photographing uh gardens that were no longer there so former garden sites while I was photographing, because so much was going on there, a lot of the gardens disappeared. You know, they were built over like construction sites on top of them or were cut in half or removed. Uh, and then I also started photographing some empty lots, like the places that the a lot of the gardens were transformed from. Now that a lot of those gardens started in, like it's a, you, you hear the same stories sort of down in the Lower East Side, uh, that a lot of these places during like the depre- economic depression in the 70s and 80s, there were all these empty lots that were overgrown, like landowners who had no interest in the property just sort of abandoned them. Uh, and they were often you know, sites of dumping or crime. And there's one, there was one community garden next to a church in Harlem where like, they started their garden after they found a dead body in the lot next door. And like, like, we got to do something to stop this from happening again. So they decided to start a garden there. So yeah, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a long project and very, a great thing to, to do. Like it also was related to, you know, I grew up with a garden and gardening a lot. My mother was a big gardener. Uh, so it was something that had also like a, a personal relationship. And now that project's been uh, coming together into a new form, right? Yeah. No, we. Uh, Tom actually did the editing for the book. I, I spent maybe two years struggling with it, uh, trying to get it together into some form that worked. And now, now we've put it together into a book form and hopefully it's going to come out next year. We're thinking. Yeah, yeah, we hope. Yeah. And what, uh, do you have a title for it? Oh, I'm blanking on my own title. Well, that's on the I'm website, it's called This Is My Garden. Is that not the title? No, that's not quite it. Okay. It's something very close to that. <laughs> it's called This My Garden Has Been To Me. It's from, uh, I think, an Ann Spencer poem. We have sort of been hinting around that a lot of the stuff you've been working on, even when you were photographing, you know, your palm trio there and uh, were influenced with technology you were, were using a four by five camera, then now you're using the panorama. But isn't there another project you're also working on that has some sort of other digital implication to it? I don't have your website. Oh, in front well, that of me. that is the the I was calling it electric dreams. The the photographs of the computer screens. Part of it was a weird, like long rambling project. <laughs> it's been oh, okay. it was like ten years long. It started out photographing those computer screens on desktops. Uh, and kind of using them as like collage elements and you know just thinking about like what are the things you look at on a computer and how are they like transported into like your personal space you now weird like news things from across the world uh, but later on I also started photographing computer screens kind of like after that you know uh, well television screens after the the digital transition uh, and I built like a little like kind of a dimmer switch basically for uh, the antenna Right, so to, make, that, to glitch Yeah, because right? now with the weird, I actually discovered afterwards there's this whole like genre called glitch art I didn't know anything about. That <laughs> there's there's even like a magazine about it. It's a, it's strange, it's sort of like, I don't know what you'd call it, like sub. <laughs> yeah, no, I know people who are there opening up, you know, JPEG files and hacking, you know, hacking through yeah, with people use hex, those, editors. Like, hex editors. And, yeah, and they're hacking and then they see what comes out mm-hmm. of it. And, but yeah, I was just interested in like the 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 sort of like breakdown that like it's a very different feel to it than like the old the kind of white static you'd get when you had signal interruption uh, with analog signals. You get this weird sort of like decomposition and freezing of portions of the image. And I thought there was something interesting in there that you could, you know, that could let you sort of like see through that perfect veneer of the television broadcast. And but you're still then re-photographing those screens with yeah, the that's film all still camera. done with the four by five camera. All right. 
You've been at Affirmation Arts for, you said, I think about five years now? Yeah, it's been about five years. I've been here kind of part-time. Yeah. When did you start teaching, though? Because I know you, you actually taught down where I teach at uh, Mercer County Community College. Did you do a, a weekend gig there? How did you get that job? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I run uh, the no, program. I think, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think the first time I taught for you was, uh, was just a regular like week, weekday class. It was a photo one, black yeah, and white? Yeah, I think it was a black and white photo one. Uh, but I started teaching a little bit before that. I mean, maybe that was in the, that might have been like the spring of 2009, 2010, maybe. Well, let me tell you, students students talked about you long after you left. You had a, a really good influence, a really big impact on students from that class. That's good to know. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad uh, they remember me to some extent. I mean, that was that was a big, uh, a, I guess, a, I don't know what you call it, an ambition or something, like... Because I think that was something that I really got from Tom. It's like the class I, I found very challenging and kind of confusing, <laughs> I think, when I when I first took it. But it was something that like slowly like dawned on me years <laughs> later. And I think that's something I try and try and do in my class, too, where it's it's not all just like a quick, simple thing. It's, there's like a lot to chew on. I, Sometimes it takes you like a while to sort of get it. I often uh, refer to... Um so community college teaching is almost like it's coming to a, a teaching hospital in a sense where you, you really kind of learn uh, uh, how to communicate a lot better because you're dealing with a, an incredibly diverse classroom. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I mean, the first, well, the, the very first time I got to teach, teach, I was lucky enough to, to teach, I think, the first summer after I graduated uh, one of the photo one classes at Columbia, like those short six week sessions. Uh, and from there, I just could have got a lucky break finding a, a photo one class at Kingsborough Community College out on Manhattan Beach, actually fairly close to where I live. Now it was, this was like 2009, so it was after the big like economic depression and there was apparently a huge enrollment boom in community colleges. So they were looking for, for more teachers. So where else have you taught? Uh, it's mainly those three places. So Kingsborough, uh, you know, your place, Mercer College, and also I taught one or two classes at Queens College. And you taught at Columbia too. Yeah, well, I said, didn't I say Columbia? Oh yeah, not just the summer, but uh, yeah, no, I've taught come a, back some, and regular sessions the, at Columbia. Exactly, yeah. Does teaching still interest you? Absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm actually about to start working full-time here at Affirmation Arts, but I've uh, I've sort of I've tried to arrange it so that they'll let me teach one or two classes a year because I, I definitely don't want to give up that part of my life. I mean, I really I think it's really important to like struggle with communicating what it is that you're what it is that fascinates you about this world and I think it's just it's a really valuable thing to do. I don't want to I don't want to give it up. Did you know that that you wanted to teach? Was that one of the reasons why you came to Columbia? Yeah, absolutely. That was definitely one of the reasons I came to Columbia is because I knew like Tom was known for teaching uh, in a way, like and helping other people become teachers. And I think also because I was there for so long, like I was there both as an undergraduate and I, I had a long time to sort of observe his teaching style and teaching methods. I mean, I think when when you're in the class, you definitely don't don't see it as like a teaching method because you're, you're so you're so emotionally involved in it. It's hard to like step back and like look at what's going on. But I think being there for so long and like, you know, just stopping by to observe occasionally when I wasn't taking a class was really instructive and I really saw that there was, you know, a lot to learn and to 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 get about trying to teach photography. Do you remember who the TAs were? Or what grad when, students when you might have I was an with? undergraduate, like so. My first photo one class was TA'd by Stephen Hilger, I think. Stephen Hilger, who's now the uh, chair of the photo department at Pratt. Tamar Halpern was there. I actually TA'd before I went to grad school. Yoav Yoav Haresh was teaching a summer session, and he had no TA, so I TA'd for him when I was doing my master of public health because uh, I'd actually taken a, I think, an independent study class with him. Some of us who have taught photo one at Columbia, you know, know that you're sort of stepping into those shoes and f trying to figure out a way to, like, make it your own. Uh, Tom Roma had this uh, pedagogical influence. You're not going to walk into the room and be Tom Roma. You're going to go in and be you, but but that you want to be able to channel some of the same ideas, you know, over. So uh, that can be challenging or daunting. Yeah, I, I've noticed, um, because uh, I am at a community college, we, we tend to go through adjuncts quickly, adjuncts come and come, especially adjuncts who live far away, right? You can only do that for so long. You've both done that. Yeah. You, you've both yeah. made that, that commute. Um, and and one, of the, one of the mistakes I, I often notice with, with new um, professors is that they, they tend to come in super aggressive, thinking that, you know, they're going to just sort of 
control and manage this class in a way like they were used to seeing and things like that. And and uh, there's a there's also often a, a steep learning curve in in figuring out how to to be the the, the teacher you want to be, but also I, I know that my Saturday class, the one Saturday class I taught for you at Mercer, I know the students hated the critique day. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know if that was because of the style or not, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, there there is something to that, I suppose. I don't know that I, I had a, a trouble like that. I mean, I think maybe my style in general is a little more gentle. I know it's, I also had some experience at Kingsborough before coming to Mercer. But yeah, it is, it is a tricky thing. I think especially when, like Columbia, you can be, I think, more aggressive. Uh, and the students are more, I think they're more used to being challenged in that way. And at community colleges, I think sometimes you get students who are a little less self-confident and if you come on very like critical and too like harsh, I think people withdraw and they're they're not they don't like rise to the challenge in the same way. So you have to be a little more kind of like you can still be critical, but I think you have to be a little more gentle and like I want to say luring. Oh, that doesn't sound like no, the right no. Word. You have to you have to <laughs> kind of ramp of like, it up a little bit, yeah, a little at a time. You have to kind of like draw them into it in a different way, <laughs> right? So so that they think you're <laughs> that you're yeah. their friend, and then you <laughs> stab them at the end. Yeah, then you stab saying, them in the kidneys when they're not looking. The boom! No, that's not what we do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's a it's. I mean, it's very interesting. Also, like it's kind of a basic psychology thing too. It's like now that if you're trying to. Like it's something that they, people tell you you should do when you're giving criticism in general is you like kind of like soften the blow by initially say praising something and then <laughs> criticizing. I mean, it's, well, you look for the the things where you can you can have positive discussions, yeah. and then you slowly work that into you know the weaknesses and things like that. Yeah, no, and you have to adjust to you know your audience or your classroom. Now, I haven't looked at your website before I came over here today, but um, so this might not be on there. But another tradition of long-standing tradition in photography, and of course we can think of Harry Callahan and everybody else and Edward Weston, is this is becoming a parent and realizing that one of the things around you is this new human being, right, who you're endlessly fascinated with. And uh, one of the last times I was over at your house, you showed me this ongoing project you've been doing with your daughter, right? Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, I have. I don't. I haven't put it up on the website yet because I'm still unsure, like how how I want to deal with it. About you know having lots of photographs of her out in public. Like, do I want people to know her name? Or, I mean, yeah. Uh, I'm just like I'm not sure how to how I want to get it out yet. But yeah, I've been photographing my daughter for well since she was born, since before she was born. Uh, and it's something like as a parent, obviously, it's it's something that you're very concerned about. And having a little girl and thinking about like what are all the challenges she's going to face you know i grew up with two older brothers so you know we didn't have any close like female cousins so i grew up in a kind of like boys world though you know not very like macho uh, but it's just a new thing to be just dealing knives with. and medieval armor <laughs> but not much. yeah but it wasn't <laughs> it's, it wasn't, wasn't bro culture all of a sudden i'm imagining his house as the adams family uh. <laughs> i love the adams family <laughs> We used to we used to spar in the backyard with wooden swords. Yeah, not no, not not macho. <laughs> but yes, now you've got yeah, now now like, now all of a sudden you're you're outnumbered. You're living in a house with your wife and this other young woman. Yes, so. who's just entered like full ballerina phase. She just my wife just bought her a tutu a few days ago, <laughs> which she does not want to take off. She like yeah. wakes up in the morning, puts on her tutu. Is she doing the, before the she dance breakfast. lessons? She's not taking dance lessons yet, but we do watch some some ballerina videos and she's in total ballerina mode although you know she before she was in ballerina mode she wanted to be an astronaut and uh, we actually when we were in italy this last summer we saw like a dance recital in like a little square and uh in a small town where was it it was in ravenna and after that she was like oh i want to be a, a ballerina astronaut she, she didn't give up on the astronaut but she wanted to be a ballerina astronaut well the tutu stays fluffier in zero gravity <laughs> yes i was so telling you you can do crazy dance sense. moves in, yes, in zero gravity. imagine yeah. what the dance would look like but so getting back to, to guy's question about um this project that you're doing with your daughter and and so has having a family has that changed the way you photograph uh the time you spend photographing and and um you know the things you choose to photograph now including your daughter yeah absolutely uh it's definitely changed like the things that you you choose to photograph because you you know you realize these other responsibilities you have uh, changes totally the amount of time you have to photograph um, but that that also is I think something that um, I think was helpful to see kind of like Tom's life photographing and how he 
I think that's been a big part of like how I've tried to organize my life and my my home even is having a dark room in the basement. So you know you can go and work in the in the few moments that you have time. You have to find a way to really like incorporate it into your life, or it just gets put on the back burner and you never you never get to it. Um, so visiting his house and seeing you know the dark room upstairs and how it was really like photography was just made a part of his life. So you didn't you didn't have to like fight to like go someplace and you know do your work it's like it's always there for you to work on whenever you have time uh, that was really important and is you know a big part of what's allowed me to continue working is you know being able to go downstairs and you know 10 o'clock at night run off some contact sheets or process film i mean it, i wouldn't get any work done if it, <laughs> if i didn't have a dark room there yeah it's funny how this uh, i guess now with uh, people working digitally everyone a lot of people have the ability to work out of their home but when I graduated from Columbia, I think I was the only person in that year who was thinking of setting up a darkroom immediately. And in fact, I'd already bought the enlarger like a semester before. I was already gathering materials knowing that I would need a darkroom right after school and that I wanted it in my apartment, that I wanted it close by. But a lot of people um, were more thinking about getting a studio for doing studio visits and these things. And the paradigm has shifted a little bit, but I, you know, I, I love going over to someone's house and then like going down to the dark room and the dark room uh, tour. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and actually, I went with you. I went with Dennis. We drove up to yeah. We bought my enlarger together. Yeah, we drove up to Hartford. Right, Hartford is right outside of Hartford, Connecticut, to get at this Devere. And man, getting that, we had to get that oh, into wrestling the basement. That down the- Basement and stairs. we never would have got it in there if your how old was your grandmother then? She was probably ninety seven oh. or eighty eight, yeah, almost ninety years old. And so here we like these two grown men wrestling this large Devere, and we're trying to get it down these basement stairs. And she clearly had decades of experience of getting things into that basement. She's like, oh no 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 no, like you know, turn this, do that. She, we never would have got it in there. I think yeah. without we were her. about to take it apart to try yeah, and get yeah, it down we there. She's like, no no, off. just turn it this way. Yeah yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. And, Even but, more amazing because she she had dementia at, at, like you now in those last years, <laughs> so it's amazing that that part of her brain is still you now functioning perfectly. But having a home darkroom, I mean, for you it ties into being able to steal moments away because, uh, from uh, the family life. Um, for me, I just I walk through my darkroom all the time, and I was uh, last night I was doing something else, and then I realized I had you know 15 rolls of film to process, and I wanted to listen to the debut episode of the Photo Show podcast, so I queued it up and processed film till like 11 o'clock at night, and you know it's just like you never would do that I think mm. if you had to. Yeah, and it's it's not just about the work; it's about it being like part of your thinking life. You know, that it's something you're you're thinking about and having it there you're reminded to think about it. Yeah, Michael, for you now, with uh, you switched over to digital and you're you're shooting your color work with the digital camera, do you have a, a setup at home that's like the office, the perfect scenario with the desk and the printer and the lighting and everything? Yeah, I, I set up a, a studio in my, my third floor attic, basically, but it's, it's, a, it's a finished third floor. And what I did was I put uh, the kids' playroom next to my studio. So if I'm home alone with uh, the kids, they can go into the playroom. I can kind of keep an eye on them a little bit. And I can be in my studio working. Um, it's It works most of the time. <laughs> but I haven't tried that yet. I've been trying to get to... I've worked in the darkroom with my daughter. We've made some like photograms, but I've been, I, I haven't yet tried to get her to play under the orange light. I've got to, <laughs> got to work on that so she can work while it, because some we have a big basement goggles. that I've turned night into. Goggles, yeah. Like the whole basement is basically the, <laughs> the darkroom. Yeah. It's yeah. just a little corner. But right. she could totally play down there if she didn't mind the orange light. <laughs> right. <laughs> so this work that you're doing with your daughter, uh, also with the panorama, right? Which is yeah, that's also with the panorama. Uh, but is this kind of a thing that you would imagine ending at a certain point, or like that you would want to edit together, or are you imagining these are photographs that you're making that might that this is? I guess the idea is of series because. You know, we work in series usually, and uh, a lot of the other projects that people could see on your website are sort of clearly defined, you know, the trenches and the mm-hmm. electric dreams. or But something like this, where there's obviously no natural end other than maybe she moves away from home and doesn't come home to visit mm-hmm. or something. I mean, you could be photographing her for a long time, right? Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure yet. 
And are you doing the full Harry Callahan and also photographing Barbara? Or oh, I've got I some photographs Barbara, of Barbara. Yeah. She, she doesn't. I don't. We we're still. I've discussing never heard it. Re- I've never heard it referred to as the full Harry Callahan. <laughs> 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 Negotiations are are underway, but I have been thinking about it. Like, like, like what what would the form of these photos? Like, what would their final form be? And uh, it is important to me. Like, they're all done. Like, I started out photographing her with maybe different cameras. I'm not sure where it all started. I think I was always using the Panorama because that had been sort of like the camera that I was using since working on the the Harlem Gardens project. And I I keep thinking I'm going to, well, let me go back to using a standard format because you know, Panorama is this elongated panoramic format. And yeah, then I keep, finding, three, right? I keep finding new things to do with it. And photographing my daughter was a really like fascinating thing to do with this panoramic format. Like I've been turning it vertically for everything basically. Uh, so I imagine her kind of like growing up into into the frame. Hmm. So I think oh, it'll be a, a long-term thing. Yeah, one of the, I mean, from the ones that I recall seeing, uh, the one thing that was interesting would be if she's in the stroller, you see her in the stroller, but then you all, because of that long vertical format, you also get to see other things that are in the world, yeah. things that she's probably seeing or you're seeing because of the context. Yeah, I mean, you see you're... sort of like, what is it to look at and like movie posters or shop windows now in that context, like as a parent with your daughter in front of them, like are these things you want your child to see? Yeah. Um, like what is what is the content of those things? That's really interesting. And other th- like other things in the world too. And uh, But that's not the only wacky long format camera that you're using, right? <laughs> yeah, I've been experimenting a little bit uh, Actually, it, it was a total disaster. I brought, I gave up on using that globoscope because oh, it was just, it was too erratic and like the quality. What is this? It's I was playing around with a, like a circuit camera, this globoscope. It's a, it looks kind of like a silver space age. It looks hand like grenade. a hand grenade. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> <laughs> they used it in Ghostbusters. It was used as a prop in Ghostbusters as like a pretend scanner. Like I was experimenting with these uh, very long, like 360 degree panoramas. The the globoscope uses 35 millimeter film, uh, but I eventually gave up on that because it was too sort of unreliable and mm. strange. Uh, but I got my hands on a sights round shot, like one of these. Mm. So it's the same idea. It's a slit circuit camera, that but that uses 120 film. Oh, nice! And is a little more high tech. Like it uses a motor instead of. Uh, like the the globoscope uses a clock spring mechanism, the sights uses a little motor that turns it around, and I was trying to use that to photograph in the trenches to, because I think like the that sort of like long format of the panorama, and uh, I started playing around with different ways of arranging the photographs, and you know in this sort of like zigzag trench format, and I wanted to put in some of these longer exposures from the the sights. Um, but just before this shooting session in Italy, like I, we were there over the summer and I spent a week um, while we were at my in-law's house photographing the trenches. I had changed the lens on it just before going out there to like a lights 28 millimeter um, shift lens to get a more coverage because it's 120 film, but it takes Nikon mount lenses. Hmm. And it turns out I, I hadn't read the instruction manual. It tells you not to mount shorter focal length lenses on the camera. So everything is sort of has this weird like a vignette Di- of some kind? It's not a vignette. It's like some sort of diffraction and there's mm. like streaking in the highlights. So everything's all messed up. <laughs> Luckily, I'm only, I was only six rolls in. Uh, so I'll, go, I'll be back in the winter and I'll shoot more. So for, for people who might have trouble understanding what we're talking about, if, if, um, if you look up a, a wide lux camera, if you Google wide lux camera, you'll see this sort of slit motorized lens that spins and the wide lux isn't it doesn't go well, all the way are, around those are a little right? different like the wide lux is a, a swing lens camera right I yeah think the, the film stays in place the, but the circuit lens cameras moves. the i think like both the film and the lens rotate oh like where okay. the film is pulled past a slit while oh, the lens is yes. rotating too so like the whole camera so everything travels spins all around. at once yeah. right right okay i'm gonna edit that out because i sound stupid <laughs> <laughs> oh what, what's Wait, this now no what's this editing <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> no, that's the difference between the wide lux and the circuit yeah, cameras. There's the swing yeah. lens cameras and the circuit that's cameras. That's educational. And there's banquet cameras. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, thinking about a sort of, it's not like a formal problem, but thinking about like, how can you make a photograph that sort of gets to, gets to the feeling that you want and like experimenting with this other format as a way to like get to that. Like I've been thinking a lot about, you know, in the, in the poetry about the, or not just poetry, like the diaries. Like I've read a bunch of like diaries of people who served in the trenches too. And 
like one of the few things that you could safely look at was the sky. You know, you couldn't like stick your head above the parapet and like look across the landscape because you'd get your head shot off. Uh, but you could look up at the sky and look at that like broad expanse of sky. And a lot of people write about like dawn or sunset in the trenches and being able to sort of like look up at that sky. And so I was going to, I was trying to, I'm trying to photograph it with both formats, but I also want to use this, this long panoramic format, super long. like and For the trench photos. Yeah. So um, how many of your projects are, are inspired by, by books and poems? And you've mentioned it quite a few times now. I don't know. I, I wouldn't say they're inspired by the poems. I think it's all like informed by it. I think it, it's just sort of how I, how I work. I mean, I, I read a lot. I like to read and I, I, it helps me think about the issue or the, like the things that I'm thinking about is like reading poetry or reading uh, novels and, you know, it's a way of informing myself. No, that's, that's one of the things that slowly like led me to the trenches is I've been thinking about like, what can I do in Italy? And now this, this other like thing that I was thinking about this like issue of trauma was kind of separate and through, you know, like reading about Italian history. And I was, I've been reading a lot about, um, Rome, because I was thinking about going to Rome. That's that's the Amtrak trains running right next to me. <laughs> uh, I was reading a lot about Mussolini in Rome and like the changes he did in Rome, because I, I was thinking about going there to photograph. Um, and I hadn't realized, I, or I'd forgotten that Mussolini had served in World War One and you know had served in the trenches, and that that had been a big influence on like the development of fascism. And so it sort of like slowly led me. To thinking about that place and like you make these different connections uh one last thing i want to bring in is this idea of uh observation and uh, being aware of your environment and how photography ties into that you know i think we all work in that way <clears throat> excuse me work in that way where you go out and if you have your camera with you or not you you're looking for stuff, right? Your eyes glancing around at things. You're trying to pick up stuff that maybe other people aren't interested in or maybe that only you're interested in. And that also ties into another thing that I think is an important part of your your creative life, which is scavenging, right? Uh, you know, I had several... Oh, my wife might, might listen to this, don't... <laughs> yeah. I've had several phone calls from Dennis and... Uh, in fact, I think Tom and I were in the Vale of Cashmere once, and we get a call from Dennis. Quick, there's a dumpster where they're throwing out, you know, and he lists <laughs> off all these amazing things. And we, like, quickly packed up and got in the car and, like, ran over there. And um, I've certainly been the beneficiary. I've got uh, that when I take my prints out of the out of the hot press, before I put them in my cold press, I first put them under this beautiful slab of marble that Dennis got for me and he you scavenged that out of a dumpster in my right or, or out of a yeah, place no, where they that were. came out of a dumpster on I think it was 11th street yeah, you know, just incredible. off Broadway a marble shop that was closing yeah marble shop we closing. bottomed out our car with all the marble that we took out of the dumpster yeah and uh and Dennis filed down two nice little handles on either side to lift up and put the prints under it's incredible but also building things you know building things for for maybe for the cameras for for the house or for things come also from just you know being aware that the environment isn't just something you're walking through but there's treasures there whether it's treasures of things to be photographed even when you're out pushing your daughter around in the stroller or treasures for things that you know might one day become you know a spoon or a handle or a camera part or something else right i think that's i don't know i mean it's maybe part of sort of the transition into photographing is like I think I'd, I'd been raised kind of as a scavenger by my, my grandfather and actually my great uncle uh, was a huge scavenger too he he would always be like picking up random things on the street uh, so yeah no I think that was a big part of I think it's also maybe part of like what would you call it it's something I've been thinking about recently as well this sort of like immigrant um, I don't know if you call it a mentality but an immigrant sort of like like you make, not even immigrants. I mean, maybe it has something to do with like rural life or something. Like you make use of what you find around you and like you do something with it. Uh, and you now there's a lot of stuff people get rid of that, that you can use for something that's, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that impulse comes from uh, probably early on from a, a necessity, right? Uh, mm. You know, uh, a need for things and, and an inability to pay for things, right? Uh, but I think then 
there's a f- photographic tradition as well as being a kind of collector because when we're collecting when we're photographing but then you know we you know when we're out in the world we're always we're sometimes we're in remote places sometimes we're in strange places and there's often interesting discarded things i think that impulse comes from uh, um from both from, from need but also a, a desire to to have to 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 have the, the little collection or little mementos of things we find along the way yeah i mean i think that's that's sort of where it, it starts a lot of the time is you you're co- like photographing is collecting and then you realize you can do other things besides be be like reminded of this thing that you saw or that you you wanted to have there's other purposes it can serve and then one other thing i wanted to mention and uh, see what you want to say about it is when you were at Columbia, you were staying, what was the name of the house you were staying in? Uh, it was Ford Hall. Which is what? It's like a, what is it exactly? What would you call it? It's, it's like a Catholic student housing. Right. Yeah. I remember, you know, conversations we had when you were in graduate school. And uh, one time you, I think you had like maybe a personal revelation and uh, you said you thought maybe what you were what you were trying to get to, or what one was trying to get to in photography, uh, was grace. Use that word, grace. I don't know if you still if that still plays into it or not. But what about you? Know, you were raised uh, with a religion, right? And does that like belief system like also tie into maybe how you approach the world or photography? I mean, I remember hearing when I heard that word, grace. That certainly, I mean, things can be graceful, but Maybe it's because of where you were living and how you were speaking about things, but it seemed to me that it was tying into something something else too, right? Yeah, no, it's something. I guess I could still use that word. I mean, it's 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 such an elusive thing to like. It's a difficult thing to talk about clearly, uh, but certainly it's something that I still think about, and I think it it does have a strong relationship to photography for me um, because I think. No, if there wasn't this sense, you know, we were just talking about scavenging and going out in the world and like looking for things. I think that's that's part of what gives it meaning or like makes it a worthwhile endeavor for me is that you're, you're like you're looking for some sort of some sort of meaning in the world. And I think without that idea of revelation or the, like the possibility of revelation, whether it's you know whether you're thinking of it in religious terms or just in the sense of like going out into the world and like now whatever like something the potential that something could be revealed to you through your explorations uh is really like powerful and the point of it i think is like the point of going out and photographing is there's some hope that you can discover something meaningful otherwise i think it would be like i would i don't think i would be interested in it if there wasn't that idea you know if it was just about going out and making pretty pictures of beautiful landscapes or um you know, collecting objects that you find attractive, I would get bored and like I'd be building chairs or something. I'd I'd be doing something more useful, or more like practically useful. Uh, so yeah, I think there that that's still something that I'm thinking about or that that's meaningful in like my my work. So um, you're working on the trenches when you're over in Italy. Uh, yeah. What about now? What about here in New York? What are you working on? I don't know. That's something I've been struggling with to figure out. I mean, I've I've obviously photographing my daughter as we said right. uh, but i'm not sure what else what else i'm gonna what or what i'm gonna do next you now like most photographers i i usually carry a camera around with me and try to photograph and see what turns up uh, but i don't have anything solid really that i'm working on here mm-hmm. i've been experimenting with some like some things at home some more like still life things uh i've been playing around I stole an, a project from Tom, and I've been photographing not not really stole a project, <laughs> what but I've that? been photographing uh, uh, flyers and like posters around. Like he he he's talked a few times about photographing like lost dog posters. So I've just been photographing posters in general. Again, with the panorama in this vertical format, uh, where the like the posts that they're attached to become these very like architectural things. But it's just something to sort of keep my hand in while I'm looking around. Was there anything else you wanted to to mention on our way out? Oh, as long as as long as we were just talking about the you know this idea of like grace or revelation and being like looking around in the world, I think that was also something that that I've really like. It's not something that Tom ever talks about. I have no idea what like his personal philosophy about it is, uh, but it's something that I've admired in his work. That I think there is this I don't know like a what you'd call it like a spiritual sense to it or. No, it never seems cynical. Like I would never describe any of like the projects he's done as being cynical or 
no, I think a lot of photography, not, I shouldn't generalize like that, but <laughs> no, there's some books of photography where that seem very like cynical or they're very like political or uh, No, I think critical. there's a general belief that one way to be taken seriously when is as a, that you're doing something serious with photography is that you go and photograph things that are grim and serious, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to yeah. looking for something more revelatory in the everyday or you try to be ironic or, or yeah that's overly clever, critical clever of something. and smart right. yeah yeah and there, there's something like very ambitious and serious about his work but not you know disrespectful or dismissive or critical yeah there's a lot of love in yeah. it right like there's a, a sense of affection for the, all the things that he photographs well great thank you very much dennis thank you kai for being here oh, thank you yeah you're welcome that was fun to talk all right, let's all say goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. Bye to the nice people. Goodbye, readers, <laughs> listeners, readers. whatever. <laughs> I hope you weren't reading during the podcast. Multitasking doesn't work. It's oh yeah. What are the neurolinguists, whatever? <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> Studies have shown that you cannot multitask effectively. <laughs> That's right.